morning, everybody. Good to see you today. We are in this message series considering the unique assignments that God has given us as a church. And we are calling these assignments God dreams. Now, a God dream, this is our definition of a God dream. It is a vision of the future that begins in the mind of God and is then given to us. Now, church is the place where God calls us to dream his dreams and then work together to see those dreams become reality. And whenever God gives us a vision of the future, it is presented inside of a frame. And that's very important to understand because while God dreams are big, we are limited. And so a frame helps us understand the doable part of the vision of the future that God has that he's assigned to us. And the frame that marks these doable limits has four sides to it. The first side is our mission. So we've been using this frame to kind of identify this. Our mission answers the what question. What are we doing? It's just a simple phrase that helps us be very clear and keeps us on track about what we're doing. And here's our simple phrase, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. That's what we are doing in just a a short statement. The next side is our values. The values answer the why question. Why are we doing this? Turns out that God's not only interested in what we do, but also why we do it. So as a church, we have five phrases, five value phrases that help us align our hearts with what God values. The first one is us for them. What this basically says is we're, we're not a club that exists exclusively for the benefits of its members, but we exist for those who are not here yet, who may be far from God. Now, this value is seen in the last words that Jesus spoke on earth. He told us, first of all, to go and make disciples. Go. We are to be outward focused. But the next thing Jesus told us to do is that we are to learn how to obey everything that he commanded. A way to summarize that is we are to grow. Once we decide to follow Jesus, we don't just sit down and kind of coast through life. We are now to to learn and grow how to follow him. And so our next four values focus on this, this growth side. Two of them address the essentials for growth to occur. We looked at these last week. The first is space to investigate. Growth requires an environment of freedom. We have to to have the ability to freely choose to grow if it's going to be real growth. And so space to investigate. The next phrase is growth requires community. Christian growth really cannot occur very well and for very long all by ourselves. It requires community. It was designed to occur inside the context of the church. Now today, We're going to look at the last two of our value statements, and these address the two barriers that tend to keep us from growing. And these are the two barriers, folly and fear. Folly and fear. First one is folly. Whenever someone decides to become a Christian, they don't instantly become wise. They don't instantly suddenly now know what to do in situations and how to please God in those situations. We all naturally are foolish, and therefore, to counter folly, wisdom, requires training, requires training. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, we read this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The flow of time is not going to help you on this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Being foolish in the Bible is not an intellectual problem. It's It's a moral challenge. It means to make decisions without God. 
That's kind of the essence of what it means to be foolish in life, is we just move forward, and our normal approach to decisions is we kind of use only our best thinking, the way we think we should do it, or maybe those around us. And we just don't factor God into the decision-making process. In the Bible, that's, well, that's a foolish way to live. And we have all experienced that. Wisdom is very different. Wisdom is situational obedience to God. It's the merging of the knowledge of what God has said about the particular situation that we find ourselves in with the skill to actually do what he said in the moment. It's not enough just to know, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do. Wisdom is actually doing in that situation what God would want us to do. In essence, it's what athletes do with the rule book. You know, the rules describe the boundaries and goals under which a particular sport is played. But it's one thing to to learn the rules or to learn the words in the rule book. It's an entirely different thing to know what to do on the field of play in the heat of the moment. You may have heard of the phrase, a person has a high football IQ. Now, when someone says that this individual has a high football IQ, they're not talking about an academic thing. They're not talking about the fact that this person, if you were to give them a football test on paper, they would score close to 100%. They have a high football IQ. No, a high football IQ is seen not on paper, but on the field of play. What it literally means is in the moment, they know they can read the situation and all of the variables that are going on. And within the rules of football, they know what to do. They have a high football IQ. Now, that doesn't just happen. That requires training. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we are told to look to athletes for some training tips on how to grow as Christians. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, this is speaking of the early Olympic games at this time, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. I want to share with with you two training tips from these two verses. Training tip number one, if you're going to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to be helpful for you to get around people who challenge you in this. Training tip number one, get around people who challenge you. Now, this is true for any kind of training, but it particularly applies for Christian training. Individual training can only take you so far in whatever you're trying to grow in, whether it's an athlete or as a Christian. As it says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, the focus of this verse is not the running. As it says, all the runners run. That's not the primary focus. The focus isn't even on getting the prize because only one as it says, gets the prize. The main point, the main focus of this verse is the way in which race runners run. When you're in a race, you run very differently than you run when you're just out on a personal jog. What's the difference between the way we run on our own and the way we run in a race? Well, race running tends to bring out higher effort than individual running does. Why? It's because when you're in a race and you're running in a competition, it it awakens something inside of us that we call the competitive spirit. The competitive spirit is a 
an internal response to the external challenge that occurs when we see other people running in the race with us. It occurs in competitions. The word competition has two part to it, parts to it. Petition, to petition, means to join. That's why if someone asks you to sign a petition, they're asking you to, to join their cause. That's what the word petition means, join with me in this cause. The prefix C-O-M means together. So competition occurs when we join together with others in pursuit of the same finish line, the same goal. Now, a competitive spirit can be bad, especially if the goal is to win at all costs. That's not the good part of the competitive spirit. And winning isn't the goal of the Christian life. I mean, we're not in a race with other Christians for the top spot for the podium in heaven. We're not trying to beat everybody else and try to get that top spot in heaven. But the New Testament does over and over again refer to the Christian effort, the Christian race, as a race because of the good part of the competitive spirit. The fact that whenever we join in pursuing the ways of Christ together with others, we end up making far more progress than we ever would if we were just out on a Christian jog all by ourselves. And the reason is that whenever we join with others in pursuit of following Jesus Christ and learning how to do that, our efforts suddenly go from subjective to objective. In other words, we're now seen by other people, not just our own thoughts and our own evaluations of ourselves. You know, by ourselves, we can just coast and no one is going to notice. And we can actually fool ourselves into thinking we're doing a lot better than we really are. Or we can convince ourselves we can't do any better when in fact we really can. You know, when I'm out on a ride on my, my road bike and someone passes me, that competitive spirit rises on the inside. It, it pushes me to do better than I, I'm doing at the point. You know, maybe on my own I was thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this. But now at least I have to contemplate the, the distinct possibility that maybe I could even do better. You see, when, when we're in a pursuit together, we see what is possible. All by ourselves, we tend to see our limits. But in pursuit with other people, we get a chance to see, well, maybe I could too, and maybe I could grow that way too. You know, when I'm out on my road bike and a guy who's in his 20s passes me, on the bike trail, I see what is no longer possible for me. <laughs> That's what happens, like, all right, go for it, dude. Enjoy your 20s. You'll, you'll be in my place eventually. But whenever I notice someone who's maybe whose beard is gray like mine, or someone in particular who looks to be in worse shape than me, if they pass me, okay, now it's on. <laughs> that lights a fire under me. Why? Because I look at that person, I think, you know, if that guy can go faster, I can go faster. The same kind of thing happens if you join in with others in training to pursue Jesus Christ. You know, recently I was just tired on the inside, nothing major, just, you know, a little tired and from some of the challenges of life, just like we all get. And then I got a call from a friend, and we spent some time together just talking. And uh, this friend, honestly, is, is facing more headwinds in life than I am right now. He's facing a lot of challenges. And as he talked about some of the steps that he's taking to grow in his faith, I was challenged. 
It's, it was the same kind of thing as someone passing me on that trail on my bike. You know, letting up for me and, and just coasting for a while suddenly didn't seem as reasonable as it had just 30 minutes earlier. You know, 30 minutes earlier, I was actually beginning to think, you know, given the challenges and given how hard life is, I, I think today I'm just, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to quit or do anything drastic. I'm just going to kind of not push as hard. Just kind of, it's going to be, you know, it's the afternoon anyways. It's just, it's just, I'm just going to coast. But then I got with this friend and was like, no, I don't think I am. I'm going to keep pushing ahead. Not because I wanted to beat this friend out for the top spot in heaven, but because he and I are in this race together and we're aiming for the same goal. We want to please Jesus Christ. And as I watched him move ahead, I thought, all right, me too. As I saw him zoom past me, my tired spirit came alive. And I got a second wind that day. The, the main point is this, this part, is, is do not just go on personal jogs with Jesus. Enter the Christian race. Enter it with other people. Be trained with others. Get around people who will challenge you. The second training tip is alter your weekly schedule. It's not training if it doesn't affect your weekly schedule. Verse 25 speaks to this. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Now, it's not just training that it says here. It says what kind of training? Strict training. What is strict training? Well, strict training always involves a plan that you and I submit to. It's not strict training. If you wake up every day and say, okay, what would I like to do today for training? That's not strict training. Strict training occurs whenever you submit to a plan, and whenever your desires conflict with that plan, you go ahead and you submit to the plan rather than your desires. You wake up, and just because you don't feel like doing what you had agreed to do in the training plan, that, well, that's, that's, that's a challenge. But if you're in strict training... You do the plan. You go to the gym. You submit to the trainer. You know, there's usually, in strict training, there's usually someone who's come up with a plan, a coach or a personal trainer that helps you, guides you, and then you work that plan. If you're in strict training, you push past the desires, whatever they are, and you continue to work the plan. You submit to it. Back in 2010, my wife and I got the privilege to go to the Winter Olympics in Vancouver. We have family, I have family that lives up there, and so made it possible, and we had a great time going to the Olympics. Now, my favorite event, we got to see about five events. My favorite event was the men's combined downhill and slalom. And in that event, that was the year that Bodie Miller won gold. And we were there, and we got to see it. So here's a picture I took from the stands of Bodie Miller crossing the finish line there at the end of the downhill race. And I want to show you the picture that occurred just a few moments after that. Here's, here's a few seconds later. Here's Bodie Miller. Now, you may not be able to tell, but if you saw a video of this, it was pretty clear that Bodie was hurting. I mean, he was gassed. He was spent. He could barely stay up on his skis. He was holding on, the, and he was just like hobbling to get off that finish line area. And the reason he told later is, is he was asked, well, you, you look like you're spent. And he said, well, the reason is because he stopped training for two months that year. Just two months of no training. 
and he barely could make it down the mountain. Why do athletes need to train so much? Well, it's because they do things that would be impossible without training. You know, going 80 miles an hour down a mountain is not natural. <laughs> That's not what any of us were born naturally to do. Now, you may have been born with some physical gifts that makes that more possible or less possible, but nobody naturally does that. You have to be trained. You have to go into strict training if you're ever going to survive, let alone be competitive in that environment. And when it comes to football, throwing a football 40 yards to a sprinting receiver while four or five 300-pound men are trying to crush you, that's not normal. That's not a normal skill. That are, oh, I know, I know what to do. No, everyone else would be, ah, and we just we fall down and try to save our lives. So if you're going to do that or any other things that athletes do at that level, you have to go into strict training. So athletes go into strict training because they're going to face physical demands that their body is just not naturally prepared for. It has to be trained for it. So the question that sometimes people ask me is, why should I spend time training as a Christian? Well, it's for the same reason. You're going to face situations that you're just not prepared for. Life is going to be harder than you are naturally going to be able to handle. You're going to face demands that will overwhelm even your best intentions to do what is right. And the challenge we all have is we're all naturally foolish. We're not all naturally wise. Doing what is right in the moment is not going to just magically occur because of our great resolve or because of the fact that Jesus is with us. It's going to help because Jesus is with us, because of God's help, but it's also going to help because we've been trained. And this is where a lot of Christians just, honestly, they stop growing. And I don't know how to say it another way than this. They do not want to put in the work. They don't want to put in the work. They especially don't want to submit to a plan that's going to push them to grow and alter their weekly schedule. I mean, they're already plenty busy. And they're already forgiven. God's already forgiven them in Christ. So why train? The problem is we all tend to underestimate the power of our folly and the propensity that we have to do what is wrong. So if you intend to turn God's words into wisdom, but you don't turn those intentions into a plan, it's just not going to happen. Now, if you're around Seabreeze long enough, you will become aware of various training opportunities. Now, you don't have to do any of them. If you don't want to, you don't have to do any of them. But they exist to help you grow. And they generally come in, in three categories, kind of like athletic training. First, there are the daily disciplines. You know, like athletes, there are daily diet and exercise elements that are the foundation of any training. If an athlete goes into strict training and they just never do any weightlifting and they eat whatever they want to eat, that's not going to help their training. The same thing is true with a Christian. There are, are daily efforts like learning how to, to spend time with God daily, learning how to study the Bible, learning how to pray on a, on a regular daily basis. Those are the fundamentals that lay the groundwork of training. And then there are the weekly group workouts. This occurs as we gather together weekly. You know, here at Seabreeze, we call those growth groups. As we get together with others, we 
It's kind of like a group workout in how to be trained. And then there are the seasonal training opportunities. This is kind of like spring training in baseball. You know, it has a limited time and a limited focus. And if you've got the interest and the time, you can participate in those. Sometimes it's a conference, just a day or two. Other times it's a training program that lasts maybe over eight months with some meetings and some homework. Other times it's a training that can last up to two years. Now you can opt out at any point, but the plan is a two-year plan. Now we train not to earn God's forgiveness or to earn his love. That's been purchased for us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's already said. We train because of folly. We train to grow in wisdom. That brings us then to the second barrier that we face whenever we're trying to grow, and that is fear. The moment you become a Christian, fear doesn't cease to exist. You're still living in a very scary world. And so in order to overcome fear, this is our next statement, faith inspires courage. Just to keep moving forward. Fear is the first human emotion, emotion that's mentioned in the Bible. Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit, and then they ran in what is a silly attempt to hide from God, as if that could be done. And God comes to them, and Adam explains why they ran. And this is what he says in Genesis 3, verse 10. He says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. I was ashamed. Now, this was not an isolated incident, it turns out. This was not the only example of fear in all of human history, no. What this means is this is the beginning of fear. And fear is now the primary emotion that we all experience in this sinful, broken, fallen world. We look out onto the unknown future, and we find ourselves afraid of something, of what might be. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not afraid. But fear is the foundation on which all kinds of other sub-fears occur. So let me ask you this. Are you concerned about anything as you look to the future? Are you worried about anything? Are you stressed about anything? Are you annoyed about something that's going on right now? Those are all symptoms that are reminding you and me that this world is a scary world. It is not a safe place. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ marked the dawn of a very practical answer to fear. The disciples learned this firsthand in a very interesting situation. Jesus was napping in their boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when a storm came up. And it was so severe that these seasoned fishermen, many of them, who were in the boat, they began to panic. They knew this this sea well enough, and they knew that given their boat and the storm, that there was probably not a chance of their survival. And so they panicked. And Jesus woke up and simply said, do not be afraid. Well, that didn't sound very helpful. I mean, just stop it, guys. Hey, stop it. Yeah, but just don't be afraid. But then what made those words work was the fact that Jesus stopped the storm and made the wind die down. And so as the storm subsided, their fear subsided. So let me ask all of us this right now. What what are you afraid of right now? 
What's, what's the thing in your mind that, as you look to the future, you're most afraid of? And let me ask you this, then, what if Jesus was with you? I mean, visibly with you, just like he was with the disciples in that boat. What if you could see him with your eyes, stand up, and command the thing that you fear to subside, just like he commanded those waves to stop? Would that help? Yeah, that would really help. But the problem is we can't see Jesus now like they did then. Jesus was on earth for only 33 years to be able to visually calm fears. And that's why the disciples panicked when Jesus told them that he was going to die soon and then be raised again, and then he would leave. And in response to their fear of no longer having Jesus right next to them to miraculously take care of whatever they were afraid of, this is what Jesus says in John 16, 17. I'm telling you the truth. It's better for you that I go away. Because if I do not go, the helper, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, then I will send him to you. Who's the helper? Later on, it describes that this is the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about. This is God's personal presence. Jesus refers to him often as the helper, sometimes the counselor. But he's God's personal presence. And if you decide to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you and inside of me. And according to Jesus, that's even better than having Jesus in the boat. Now, how, how can that be true? I mean, honestly, how could it be better to have the Holy Spirit inside of you and me than have Jesus in the boat to say, Jesus, and have him calm the storm? Well, in 2 Timothy 1.7, we are given a description of the kind of help that the Holy Spirit gives us in the face of fear. This is the description. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. In other words, when we're afraid, that doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. That's not the spirit he gave us. Here's what comes with the helper, the Holy Spirit, the counselor. But a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. You see, faith is not just some kind of magic wand that we wave over fear and then it, poof, it disappears. Now, it's more like, fear is more like a fog that we just have to walk into in faith. The word timidity in the Greek language, which is what this was written in, literally means it's two, two words together, no and faith. No faith. What this means is we look out in the future and there is no God. Now, we may say, oh, we believe in God, but as we look at this situation right now, we're thinking about it, and we're not factoring God into it. We have removed God from the equation. All we can see is what might happen, not how God might protect us or how he might provide for us or how he might guide us in this moment. In other words, Jesus isn't in the boat as we look out. The only data that we can see is the storm, and all we can imagine is drowning. This word, timidity, is often also translated dread. Just dread. You know, when you look to the future without God, that is actually a logical way to look to the future. I mean, how could you not watch just a little bit of news and not look to the future and think, oh my goodness. And if you got kids, oh no. Dread. 
Without God, dread's a very logical outlook on the future. So again, what do you fear? And the question is, how do you push past the spirit of timidity? It's interesting, it's a spirit of timidity. It's not just a thought. There's some help making you scared with this. God's presence on the inside is not that. God's presence on the inside, the Holy Spirit, opposes this. There are three anti-fear moves that are given to us in this verse. These are very powerful. The first one is actually power. And in the Greek word that's used here, it's translated this way, the ability to do the next thing. Does that sound powerful to you? Well, when it comes to fear, that's not the kind of power I would want. That wouldn't be my first vote. My first vote would be the power to make whatever I'm afraid just go away. Now, we, we'd prefer the power to protect ourselves and those we love or the power to provide for everything that we might need or might face. That is, that's the kind of power that God has. That is not the kind of power that he gives to us. He gives us the power to do what? The next thing. That's the most powerful thing that we can do. We need to grasp this. The most powerful thing in our hands right now is what we do next. That's powerful. You never know what someone's going to do next. That's where the power is. You know, some days and some seasons, that's harder than you might think. The problem with fear is that you can't answer it by telling yourself that what you fear isn't going to happen. I mean, it may. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. The only question that you and I can ever answer right now is not what's going to happen, but, all right, what should I do next? That's all we can do. But that's a lot. And when we decide to ask that question and take that step, God comes along and says, I'll help you with that one. I'll help you answer that question, and I'll help you take that step. He gives us a spirit of power. If we allow fear to freeze us, more of what we fear takes over. But if we move towards fear in faith, trusting God as we take the next step, and then the next one, and the next one, then we'll find that a lot of what we're afraid of never materializes. Like I said, fear is kind of like fog. When you're in the middle of a fog, especially a thick fog, you just have to look at the ground and take the next step, and then the next one, and then the next one until it dissipates. If you don't, the fog becomes a wall that traps you. The next step of power that God gives us is love. So power, do the next thing. Love, the word means full of goodwill. What does love have to do with fear? What's the opposite of fear? 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. They're, they're anti-each other. They can't exist together. Why does perfect love drive out fear? Well, it's because they're, they're the opposite directions. You know, we can't look both right and left at the same time. Those are opposite directions. I'm going to look over here, and then I'm going to look over there. I can't look over both right and left. I have to pick a direction and look that way. I have to choose one. When you're afraid, what's your primary concern? What's the direction you're looking at? What's going to happen to me? Inward. Fear is a consuming and self-focused activity. Its direction and orientation is me. Love is what? The exact opposite. 
It's not what's going to happen to me, but how could I help this person? It turns the attention away from me and towards someone else. So, so whenever we love, whenever we look at someone with goodwill and we decide how we could help them, it's like turning on one of those big industrial fans and blowing the fog of fear away. Fear begins to lift. The next one is self-discipline. This means keeping a safe mind. The Holy Spirit on the inside gives us help to guard our minds from the thoughts that will just overrun us. You know, Adam running to hide from God after he sinned, that was not a logical thing to do, right? Oh, no, God, where could I hide? I know, a bush that he's created. He can't see through bushes that he's made, right? I mean, that makes no sense at all. But that's what fear does. Fear's not logical. It's reactionary. You know, we, we don't ever fear because at some point we say, you know what? It would be rational for me to freak out right now. That's not how it works. You know, we, we feel fear and then thoughts of fear take over to back that up. And in order to push through the fear, we, we need to inventory our thoughts and reject the ones that have no faith to them. One of the most helpful exercises that I've ever done to help me with fear is to take a thought inventory. What I mean by that is to actually write down what I am feeling and the thoughts that are supporting that feeling. Now, this takes time. Most of us just think and feel, think and feel, think and feel, think and feel, and we don't even think about what we're feeling. But if, if you can't identify what you're feeling and write it down and what you're thinking and write it down, there's no way you can keep your mind safe. Our mind is not a safe place if any thought can just wander in and take up residence and bring all its friends with it. So what, what this is saying is you're going to have to set up a perimeter on your brain, on your mind, and you're going to need to check IDs and throw out a bunch of the thoughts that don't belong. If your mind's ever going to be safe. Now, a note on this is if you've been thinking a certain set of thoughts for a long period of time, they don't just leave because you ask them nicely. They live there. And you have to keep throwing them out. And it's like, what do you guys, get out of here. Five minutes later, I told you, leave. They'll leave for 10 minutes then, and you just have to keep throwing them out. Now, I want you to notice that each of these three are not what the Holy Spirit does for us, but how he helps us. What did Jesus call the Holy Spirit? The helper. What is that? When someone helps you, what that means is you're already moving in a direction. You're already doing something, and they come along to help. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is not a magic force that just transports us towards growth. No, he says, now, as you begin to do the things that I want to help you with, I'm going to help you. But we have to take action on these three. He helps us, but we have to decide to do it. So if you're a Christian, I, I have a question for you. Did you grow last year as a Christian? If so, how? Just for you, how did you grow? And here's a real tough question. Would those who are close to you agree? And if not, if, if it was only incremental, or, or you have to be honest, say, I, you know, I really am about to say, maybe even a little worse. If not, why not? 
Now, there are more reasons why maybe you didn't grow this last year than the two that I've talked about today, but these are the most common. It was either because you did not put in training level effort in 2018 or because you allowed fear to stop you in your tracks. Now, if that's the case, I'm asking you this not to make you just, oh, no, I'm an awful person. Don't wallow in guilt. God still loves you. But like any father, he wants you to grow. So the good news is, it's 2019, and you're still alive. What that means is, there's probably a bunch of next steps that you and I can take this year. And I would say, seriously consider the training opportunities that come your way here at Seabreeze, if you're a part of this church. And then I encourage you to practice these three steps over and over and over again. This is so helpful for me. All right, God, what, am, what should I do next? Let me take that step. All right, who can I help? Let me do that. And then let me check IDs at the door of my brain and throw out the no faith thoughts. And then just do that over and over again. May we grow. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your words that free us from fear. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence that helps us as we begin, just even begin to move in the directions that you want us to move. You are there just to help us, to wrap your arms around us, and even if our legs are barely able to move, you give us strength. I pray that you would give us insight, all of us, into what you want us to do next, how you want us to grow. And may we be a people not only who go and make disciples, but of people who over time learn more and more about how, how to obey everything that you've taught us. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.